Now we're picking up a story that began last week. We read chapter one and we were in the, the Persian Empire. There was this great king whose name I struggle to pronounce. It's something like a Hashbarosh, um, but you know, that's my best Persian. Um, and he is a, a mighty king whose empire stretches from kind of India, Pakistan, right across through the stands, as we call them nowadays, through kind of Armenia, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Ethiopia, right down into North Africa. And he's had this great banquet to impress his generals and his governors. And at that banquet, he summoned his queen, Vashti. He wanted to show her off. And she refused. And so she's been driven from his presence. Already we're beginning to laugh a little bit at this king who thinks he can command everything, but his wife uh, is able to uh, refuse his will. And his punishment to her Ironically, is what she wanted anyway, to not come before him again. It's kind of not a terrible punishment, is it? It's like the kid who doesn't turn up to school and then as a punishment gets ex- you know, suspended for three days. So brilliant. Three more days not having to come. Fantastic. Thank you very much. But we're going to come now to Esther 2. And the after these things is after that removal of Vashti as queen. So let's hear God's word. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti. And what she'd done and what had been decreed against her. Then the young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people nor kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the king time came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again 
unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Terebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Well, here we are again in the Persian Empire. We're going to walk through the story, first of all, to... Uh, make sure we're clear what's going on to try and make some sense of it. And then we'll, we'll see what, what this strange portion of Scripture has to say to God's people today. Uh, the whole story, at least of chapter 2, begins with the council. This is verses 1 to 4. Ahasuerus, without his king, calls together uh, his advisors, his young men, in verse 2, who attended him. And they've got a plan. You've lost your king, uh, your queen, they say. So let's have a kind of competition Uh, By this stage, we read that uh, the king's anger had subsided a little bit at Vashti. He's calmed down a little bit. Throughout the book, we'll see he's driven by his appetites. And so he's not really in control of himself. But he's calmed down a bit. And so he's keen to listen. Yes, I need a new queen. Uh, What you need, say the young man uh, in verse 4, is very literally, if we were translating it, uh, let the young woman who is good in the eyes of the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this was good in the eyes of the king. You need someone who's good in your eyes. Uh, This whole chapter, time and again, is going to emphasize looks, how things look, how things appear. So so what we'll do is round up all the young unmarried women. Children, that's what it means by a virgin. All the unmarried women in, in the empire. And we'll find the most beautiful, the most pretty and bring them to you. In other words, uh, the king is going to collect a whole harem worth of living dolls for his pleasure. Uh, They'll be spruced up, given cosmetics. And the one who's the best, well, she can become queen. It's pretty unsavory stuff already, isn't it? And frankly, it's about to get worse. So scene one there, we we get that council and the king likes it. And then we're introduced to the the main characters, two characters we've not yet seen in the book, but are going to be crucial to the plot. Uh, They are Mordecai and Esther. Here's Mordecai uh, in verses five through seven. Mordecai the Jew. Very often Mordecai is described in the book of Esther as Mordecai the Jew. He is one of God's people and that is emphasized time and time again. Uh, He's also, in verse 5, given a bit of a genealogy to get the family tree. Children, do you see that down uh, in verse 5? We're we're not just told he's one of God's people, we're told his family line. This is Prince William, the son uh, of King Charles, uh, the son of Queen Elizabeth. It's that kind of line. And the significance here just needs to be 
kind of stored in your brain for a while. You won't see why it matters in chapter two, but we will do in the next two or three weeks. The significance is he's a relative of King Saul. Saul, Saul's family is the family of Kish. So here is someone who is a descendant of the first king of Israel, King Saul. That's going to be very important, but I'm not going to tell you why for a couple of weeks. So there he is, the the, the descendant of King Saul, but he's in exile. He's not in the homeland of the Jewish people. He, like many others, in fact, it was his sort of grandfather's or great-grandfather's generation, were taken from the land and are now living in, in, in Susa, the capital, or one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. In fact, Mordecai's very name isn't Jewish. Uh, the Babylonians had a god, the Persians sort of borrowed him, Marduk. And it seems like Mordecai's name is, is taken from this pagan god. In that sense, it's a bit like saying, here we have Muhammad the Christian. The the very name Muhammad rings with Islamic connotations, doesn't it? Well, so too Mordecai, Marduk. Now, that's not to say he's not a faithful Jew, just as, of course, there'll be many faithful Christians in the world called Muhammad. But there's a kind of tension there between the name he's presumably been given in the empire, which he serves, as we'll see next week, and his identity as a child of God. So there's Mordecai, uh, and he has a cousin. This is Esther, verse 7. In fact, she's not Esther at first. You see that? She's Hadassah. Her Jewish name is Hadassah, and her Persian name is Esther. Hadassah is is the the Hebrew word for for the myrtle tree, the myrtle plant. Uh, And one of the prophets, Zechariah, who was ministering just a little bit before the book of Esther, most likely, um, he, in his first chapter, uses the, the myrtle tree, the myrtle plant, as a picture of Israel. Children, you know some countries have a kind of particular flower or plant associated with them. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it's the vine for Israel. But in the days of Zechariah, it was the myrtle tree. England might have a rose. Imagine if you were reading a Shakespeare play and there was an English girl called Rose. She would be a kind of a symbol of England. Scottish girl called Thistle. Okay. Welsh girl called Daffodil. Daffodil, there we go. Not leek, Daffodil. There we go. Daffodil. You get the idea. So so Esther is going to almost symbolize in her one person the whole of the nation. And we'll see that what happens to Esther is bound up absolutely inextricably with the fate of God's people. And this poor woman uh, is very much at a disadvantage in life. Uh, You'll see down there in verse uh, 7, she's an orphan. She has neither father nor mother. Hence, she's being looked after by her presumably older cousin. So here she is, an orphan from an irrelevant, despised race. That's presumably why she's advised to keep quiet about it. We'll come back to that. Uh, She's a woman. You wouldn't typically have power in the days of the Persian Empire. Uh, She is vulnerable in every way. And she too has this kind of double identity. She is Hadassah, but she's better known as Esther which most likely is from the, the Persian word for a star. You can almost hear it in her name, a star, can't you? Star. Again, that'll come back in a couple of chapters' time. We're kind of setting the scenes in lots of ways. Uh, but she has one thing going for her, two things going for her, in fact. She's, in the words of one writer, she's double-blessed. Do you see that in verse 7? The young woman, this is Esther, had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. She is pretty and shapely. So there are two key characters we've had the council in verses one to four the characters in verses five to seven 
Uh, and then there's this horrible collection in verses 8 through 14. Uh, Esther, amongst others, is taken in this great collection of pretty young women. Uh, was she willing? Was she terrified? Was she kicking and shouting? We're just not told, are we? But the emphasis is very much throughout the chapter on the idea of Esther being passive. She is taken. She doesn't walk. She's taken. Uh, just as the Jews were taken from the promised land. Uh, these women are taken. Later on, she'll be taken to the king's bedchamber. Uh, she is, it's, it, as it were, a, a passive victim of this exploitative empire and emperor. And so she's brought to the first collection of these young unmarried women and put through the beauty treatments, 12 months uh, in total, six months of kind of bathing in myrrh and six months of spices to really kind of uh, get you ready for the king. And she keeps quiet about being Jewish. Do you see that in verse 10? She had not made known her people or kindred. In other words, she doesn't let on she's a Jew. And at this point, readers of Esther down the centuries from the earliest Jews through to kind of Christians today speculate endlessly about what's going on here. Um, It seems a stark contrast with someone like Daniel. Children, do you remember the story of Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego as they get renamed? When they get taken into exile by the Babylonians, they insist on only eating kosher food, the kind of food that Jews were allowed to eat following their own dietary laws. They make a great stance on it. Esther seems to keep quiet. Daniel, when everyone's told not to pray, goes, opens the windows and prays. Esther seems to keep quiet. And so some uh, criticise her or Mordecai for telling her to keep quiet. What do you think you're doing? Why not resist? You shouldn't have let yourself be taken to the king's bed. Better to sacrifice your life. In fact, the, the Jews themselves produced a translation of the the Hebrew Bible, this Old Testament Hebrew Bible, um, often known as the Septuagint. It's in Greek, uh, again, several hundred years before Jesus. And in that version of Esther, which is the translation, um, they stick in extra bits, including a bit where Esther says, I hate being taken uh, to uh, this Gentile king. I hate the marriage bed I've been subjected to. And sort of lays out that she really doesn't like it at all. We just don't know. We just don't know. Was it wise? Or or, or was it wimpish? We just don't know. It's ambiguous. But the point is, she is passive. She's being taken everywhere. Uh, The action, if you like, is not in her hands, but those of others. And so this collection of young women each take their turns night by night. And it's pretty gruesome. It would be a massive airbrushing to call this a beauty contest, wouldn't it? That the beauty contest is stage one. That's already happened. Now they're being auditioned night by night in the king's bedroom. Each day, the next woman, the next young woman is taken in. Each night, sorry. She has a night with the king. And then she's dispatched to a kind of second harem, a second collection of women. And there she'll stay, unless the king summons her back. Unmarried. Unable to leave, unable to return to her family, used and disposed of by the king, and then kept like some sort of zoo animal on the off chance that he might call her back. It is grim. 
Uh, Esther as a story is, is a kind of rollicking read. It's almost pantomime-like, and, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. But we don't want to miss the darkness uh, of what's going on here. Uh, the collection. And then final scene. The crown. Verses 15 to 18. It comes to Esther's turn, and she takes the advice of the eunuch uh, who uh, runs the uh, house for the unmarried women. Notice, by the way, that uh, it's not just young women, but men as well who are being exploited by the king. Uh, every year we read in uh, Herodotus, he was a, a historian of the time, uh, that about 500 boys were taken and made into eunuchs to serve the king. Yes, the women were exploited, but so too the, these boys. Uh, when Esther goes in, she doesn't bother with too many gifts or, or too much flowery. Rather, she goes in and finds favour. Do you see verse 15 finds favour? In the eyes, again, of the king's eunuch and in the eyes of all who see her. And ultimately, in the eyes of the king. Verse 17 tells us she found favour in his sight. Again, this emphasis on what things look like. But she is passive. She is taken, verse 16 again, to the chamber. And so, after she finds favour in his sight, it's a very sort of euphemistic way of putting it, isn't it? Airbrushing over the kind of gritty details. Uh, She becomes queen. She is crowned. And a banquet is given to celebrate. Well, if that's a story, what on earth is going on? We have to say, don't we, this is a strange corner of Scripture to our eyes. There is, as you'll have noticed, no mention of God. Uh, there's no commentary, really, from the author of Esther, whoever he may be, the human author. Author's the Holy Spirit, of course. But there's no commentary on who's doing right and who's doing wrong. It's hard to dive in and, and to draw lessons from either Mordecai or Esther's life. But, but I, I do think that this points us and would have pointed the Jews uh, to reflect on the nature of the empire they were living in and to compare it to the empire uh, that was their true home. Remember, these Jewish people in exile have two identities. We thought about this last week. Children, remember we talked about superheroes often having two names? We saw how many of them were Jewish in their origin. The Jewish uh, creators of Batman and Superman who gave them two names. These Jewish exiles who were driven to flee the persecution often in, in Europe, fleeing to America in the early 20th century and creating these, these characters with two identities, Batman, Bruce Wayne and Batman, Superman, Clark Kent, and then Superman. Two identities, the real you and the hidden you. The one in public that everyone sees and then the real you. Well, so too Esther or Hadassah, and so too every Jew who is living in the empire. In fact, every person of God who lives in this world, you are a citizen of King Jesus and at the same time you live in this world. And Esther too speaks to that. Let's think first about the emperor in us. Okay, the emperor in us. It's easy to boo Ahasuerus, isn't it? This emperor, and we do so rightly. What he is doing is clearly immoral and wicked. He's taking women that he sees, assessing them, using them, indulging his appetite, which seems to be insatiable, and then disposing of them. I want it, so I take it. We're almost back in the Garden of Eden, aren't we? 
when Adam and Eve indeed saw the fruit, saw it was pleasing to the eye, she took it. She, it was desirable, so she took. I want, I take. Now the king has no rivals, he has ultimate power, so he's able to take whatever he wants. He can do it, he can collect hundreds, thousands of women. We don't know exactly how long this contest went on, but likely several years. The numbers really add up. And so we boo and hiss and look down our nose at him. And then we think about our own world, our own society, and even ourselves. Let's say the contest went on for three years, about a thousand women a year, maybe 3,000 women, a hashrosh, choose through. By the age of 18, uh, the average child has seen 11,000 naked images, one recent study concluded. There's a medical journal uh, that did a load of research on this, particularly focused on Europe. They concluded this. In total, 69% of men and 27% of women use pornography. Among men aged 16 to 24... 17% use pornography daily, 25% use it three or five days a week, and 24% use it one or two days a week. That is a lot more women being chewed through than how a hashrosh ever got through. And we can say, well, it's just looking, but it's the same sin, appetite, desire, use and abuse of other people. Why are we so drawn in to this besetting sin? And again, I'm sorry to, in some sense, to focus on such dark matter this morning, but if we're honest, it is a battle. We are quite a young congregation in many ways, and many people in this room certainly will struggle in this way. We, we have a bit of a hash brush in us. Uh, apparently, uh, if you were to take any one human being living in Europe a thousand years ago, he or she will now be related, statistically, to everybody who lives in Europe today. Okay, just, just sort of the genetics, the way it plays out. Any one human being a thousand years ago uh, living in Europe will be related to every single human, um, human being living in Europe today. Okay, so think about so a thousand years ago, just before William the Conqueror, Edward the Confessor, or those kind of people. You're going to be related to them probably if you're sort of European or roughly from that kind of Mediterranean basin. Well, Ahasuerus wasn't exactly a European. He was just sort of over the borders of Europe, I suppose. But there's a bit of him in all of us. This see, desire and act on appetite. This willingness to use and abuse other people. Go back to pornography. Here I'm provided on the internet this endless string of women who cannot object, who cannot speak back, who must do my will, who I can use, abuse, discard, and move on to the next. They cannot say no. I am the powerful one. I kid myself that I'm in charge, that I have their affection or their love or their respect or their... When all along, I'm just addicted. A hashwash isn't in control. He's like an animal. He's being driven by his appetites. Maybe for us it isn't the use and abuse of sex, it's food, it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's all sorts of things that grab our appetites and drive us. 
And there is a bit of the emperor in us, we're forced to admit. But what about, secondly, the emperor among us? The emperor among us. Uh, Esther, as we'll see, I don't want to give too much of the story away, but as we'll see, she turns out to be the great saviour figure in the book. And what an extraordinary saviour. She is weak to the ultimate degree in this kind of empire. As we've said already, she's an orphan. And she's a woman. She's in exile from her home nation. She's a Jew. Everything is stacked against her. Such an unlikely saviour. And yet it's her God uses to rescue his people. The fact that she ends up as queen is going to be crucial to the rescue of the whole nation, the whole of God's people. And if you were to, to, to look at this story and say, where, where, which verse or two, which verse or two is, is crucial? Which is the moment that secures the salvation of the Jewish people? In fact, let's expand that out a bit. Given that Jesus is born from the Jewish people, what is the moment in this story? What are the verses in this story? If you had to pick just one or two, what is the moment that secures the coming of Christ, God's son, into the world? In fact, let's expand that again. Given that your salvation, if you are a Christian, is entirely dependent on Christ and his coming into the world, what is the verse or two, what is the moment in the story that that secures your salvation? It is that horrible night, isn't it? Where a Gentile king exploits a Jewish woman. That horrible, dark night. A terrible act of wickedness. And yet, in the strange providence of God, the strange working of God, the moment that sets up, that leads to, that ensures the salvation of his people. And there are hints there, are there not? Given that all scripture points us forward to Christ. Do we not see shadows of what's to come? We'll see uh, a man come into the world um, who chose to be despised, who chose to be rejected. But a man who was in one sense passive. He gave himself to be passive, we might say. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was whipped. Passive, it happened to him. He was spat at. Passive, it happened to him. And of course, the big difference for him versus Esther is he went voluntarily. And a powerful empire took him, stripped him, beat him, and nailed him to a cross, crucified him. That's not what you'd expect. That's not how you'd expect God to save, is it? And yet it is that wicked act of human beings, and it was a wicked act, that is at the same time in the providence, the working of God, the moment of salvation, the moment our sins were dealt with, the moment atonement was made, the moment the gates of heaven were opened. And so through the murk, the dirt, the grime of Esther, you begin to see the shadow of who is to come, or perhaps better, a glimmer of light begins to appear. Uh, Just a little window into the divine love 
the love that God has for you, that he was willing to come and be mistreated even more, dare we say it, than Esther himself, herself, sorry, in order that you and I might be rescued. He will gain nothing. We've said this time and time again. The Son of God didn't need worshippers. He didn't need forgiven sinners. He wasn't lacking anything in heaven, but still he came out of love for his people. One minister from, from many, many years ago said this, nothing short of a divine love could or would have borne our sins and the punishment of our sins. The weight of one, the terribleness of the other, the weight of sin, the terribleness of the punishment would have crushed and annihilated a mere created love. There exists no love but the love of Jesus equal to the work of salvation. He is willing to go into the utter pits of darkness to be treated like scum for your sake in order that you might be raised to glory. And so that leads us finally to the Emperor Obrus. Uh, the Jews, as they either read the story of Esther, which they do each year on the, the Feast of Purim, we'll see that later uh, in the book, all the Jews indeed who, who lived in the days of the empire would, would be forced to look at, at, at the king and compare him to the king they knew to really be on the throne. They sang in their psalms, the Lord God is king. And whilst they looked at the king on the throne that they could see with their eyes and saw someone who would exploit, who would take, who would see, who would be superficial, who would use, abuse and dispose, who would judge on performance. I want the beautiful, the powerful, the wise at my court and everybody else can be gone. They would see that king, but they would hear as they sang their psalms at home and in the synagogue, they would hear of a totally different king. I think of the end of the book of Psalms. Uh, in Psalm 145, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And that psalm begins, I will extol you, my God and King. My God and King is abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, merciful to all that he has made. Uh, they would sing in Psalm 147 to praise the Lord. Why? Well, how does he treat his people? His delight is not in the strength of the horse, his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. And who is this God? He's the God, Psalms, who heals the brokenhearted, binds up their wounds, builds up Jerusalem, gathers the outcasts. Here is a totally different emperor to King Xerxes or Ahasuerus. The worldly empire says, perform, perform, perform. And if you succeed, you'll be blessed for a while at least until you're not useful anymore. That is how our world works, isn't it? It works with, with beauty. We are loved and appreciated. As long as we are beautiful, then we're disposed. We see it in the media, we see it in the, in the world of movies and film. And we frankly see it in our own lives. Some of you will perhaps have been in relationships where as long as you've stayed attractive, beautiful, you've been loved seemingly and as soon as it fades gone but it might not be beauty academic success career progression it's all achieve 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 isn't it 
Achieve in order to please your spouse. Achieve in order to please your boss. Achieve in order to please your parents. We're on edge all the time. And then along comes King Jesus. Uh, He also speaks of a banquet, and one day we'll host a banquet, indeed. He tells the story, children. Do you remember the story of the the great banquet? Where he invites, first of all, his his friends, and they make excuses. And so he says to his servants, go and invite everyone. They say, we have. And he says, no, go try harder. Go out to the hedgerows and the highways. Invite in the crippled, the poor, the lame. What, What do they need in order to be able to come and feast at his banquet? Nothing. What qualifications are there? None, no beauty, no wealth, no wisdom. He will invite the porn addict and say, come to me and find forgiveness. And we say, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know how like King Ahasuerus I am. And he says, yes, I do. And that is why you must come. But because of my love, you can come. Let me ask you, why does... God love you. Children, have you ever asked that? Why does God love you? He loves you because he loves you. Now that might sound a really simple thing to say, perhaps children a silly thing to say, but it's a really important thing. He loves you because he has chosen to love you. He loves you because he is a God of love. He doesn't love you because... You have chosen him. He doesn't love you because you're better than anybody else or holier or or more spiritual. He doesn't love you because you haven't done some of the things that perhaps a king of Hashworth has done. He loves you because he loves you. Martin Luther said this, the love of God doesn't find but creates which is pleasing, that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find but creates what is pleasing to him. In other words, he doesn't look for people he can love. Oh, there's someone who's lovely. Yes, he, 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 she, he, they are worthy of my love. Like, they are lovable. That's how we work. No, no. He sees, he loves, and he makes us his children and showers his love upon us. This is so freeing. The reason he loves you is because he loves you. The, the, the pressure is off to perform like in King Ahasuerus' court. You are saved by grace and you will stay in by grace. This is inviting. There's a hymn we sing sometimes. I love it. I don't know how many of you like it, but I keep forcing us to sing it every now and again. Uh, Joe, the hymn, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. It's this great invitation to come to Christ. And it's an invitation he, he, he reissues this morning, whether to you for the first time, perhaps you're new to the Christian faith. You've never realised God is like that. Or whether you are a bruised Christian. Whether you're someone who's flickering in the faith. The hymn goes on. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't make your guilt keep you away from Christ. Don't fondly dream that one day you'll be in a fit state to come before the king. You won't. Let not conscience make you linger, Let not, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Just come. We say, have I repented hard enough of my sin? Have I really repented for the right reasons? Have I? He says, come. Come. 
Or it goes, come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry, children, if you wait till you're better, you will never come at all. He does not demand you come better, but rather you come. And then slowly, he will make you better and instantly he will forgive you. Jesus has no house of rejects like King Ahasuerus. He does not accept us and then after we fail him or he gets bored of us or we mess up as Christians, we get pushed away. Again, I wonder if some of you this morning, you're Christians, you know you've messed up badly, perhaps even in the area of sexual morality, and you've begun to think either I'm unforgivable or I've done this too often or perhaps, okay, maybe God will forgive me, but he can't use me. None of those are true. Esther is passive all the way through chapter 2. Possibly also culpable, hard to say. But King David was certainly culpable when he took Bathsheba, another man's wife, and arranged Uriah, her husband's murder. And yet still used again by God. Paul was certainly culpable as he approved the murder of Christians. Peter was culpable as he denied Christ and later the gospel. All were not just forgiven, but used Beloved, beloved, says that Victorian minister, nothing shall take the love of Christ from you. It does not ebb with the ebbing of your feelings. It does not chill with the chill of your affections. It does not change with the changing scenes and circumstances of life. The love of Christ has depths we cannot sound, heights we cannot explore, an infinite fullness and freeness, tiding over all the sins, infirmities and sorrows of its blessed and favoured objects. Your king is not a Ahasuerus, but Christ. And in him is peace and life and security. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray and praise you that you have given us Christ. And that in all the mess of these worldly empires, we can find peace at his feet. Again, we say to you, nothing in our hands we bring but simply to Christ's cross we cling. Uh, therefore, bless us and keep us. Have us flee from, from sin and the world around us. Break, uh, again, the power of sin over us where we've stumbled back into it uh, by the mighty power of his spirit. And allow us to live, we pray, even in this dark world, as faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this we ask in his name. Amen. <laughs>